Forbidden Talk is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not suitable for listeners under 18. The subjects, anecdotal scenarios, descriptions, products, and techniques described here are not a suitable substitute for professional medical advice. Please follow local laws, and if you have a medical emergency, please call 911. I'm Sam. That's Mona. This is Forbidden Talk. Thank you so much for joining us. Mona, how you doing? Grinding so hard. If I don't see the results in 2020... I'm going to lose faith in God. I'm just kidding. I already <laughs> did. I'm um, just kidding. No, I didn't. I'm not an atheist. Um, sometimes I feel like it, but I'm not. But uh, no, it, yeah, I mean, you know. Which is a good thing that we have our guest on with us today. We have an expert on something called mindfulness and mindful practice. This is the best part of today. She's incredible. So just a little background on Dr. Uh, Lippy Roy, yeah. who's going to be our incredible guest today. So I was recently featured in Forbes magazine and she was kind enough to interview me. I have a fellow comedian friend who recommended me to her. Um, and uh, we were on the phone, like the moment I got on the call with her, I think I was on the phone with her for like 40 minutes or something like that. And I was, we were just talking about comedy and mental health and just my personal stuff that I've been through. And it was incredible. She interviewed like 15 or 20 different comedians Comedians and she chose like maybe five and I was one of the five and I was very honored because Jim Gaffigan was also you know interviewed for this article and Jim Gaffigan is the first comedian I ever ever saw for the first time on stage even before I did stand-up comedy so that just felt kind of was like full circle wow that's awesome yeah. I, I'm, that, I'm glad that you had that uh experience and also that you got to meet dr lippy roy as she's now going to be on the show with us she's the yep. director of addiction medicine and community engagement at urban recovery nyc yes we would like to welcome our amazing guest today dr lippy roy thank, thank you i'm so honored to be part of the show we are so, so excited to have you. I've just been like, I've just become such a fan of yours ever since I've spoken to you and, you know, just uh, been chatting with you and uh, our, our long, long conversations. And of course, there's always that brown connection. So that always helps, too. <laughs> right back at you, Mona. I'm a real fan of yours and I really admire what you do and all the things that you've overcome. And uh, yes, it's a, a mutual fan society here. Well, thank, well, thank you very much. And now we have uh, some of our, our, my wonderful co-host Sam Zia is here and Sam's yeah. going to chime in. Yeah, no, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, for people who don't know, uh, Dr. Lippy Roy, you are a obviously a doctor, a specialist in uh, addiction, also mindfulness. And these are some things that for our show, people are kind of, uh, you know, there's a couple of avenues of that where people are like, how does this apply to sex and what we usually talk about? And there are some avenues that it absolutely connects to sex and mindfulness and addiction. So thank you so much for joining us and having this conversation with us. Absolutely. Thank you for the invitation. And yes, I, as I said to you earlier, I can tie mindfulness and mindful practice really into every aspect of life. It benefits us in every possible way. So I'm always uh, uh, happy to talk about it. Yeah. And uh, for... Uh, you are the expert in this, and I would feel really awkward trying to describe something that's your expertise. I mean, I have, I have experience with it, but I really want you to kind of give the audience an idea of what mindfulness really is. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. Well, thank you for calling me an expert. 
quote-unquote expert in this, but to be very honest, you know, I, I, I went to, I've been fortunate enough to go to undergrad and graduate school and medical school and then residency training in internal medicine and, uh, and then further addi- additional training in um, board certification addiction medicine. But to be perfectly honest, I didn't learn about mindful practice during any of my formal training. It didn't come until really years later when I started taking care of homeless men and women in Boston. And I met with one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Sanjeev Chopra, who's the brother of Deepak Chopra, who's uh, world famous when it comes to meditation and mindful practice. But um, so Dr. Sanjeev Chopra's wife, Amita Chopra, was the one who actually trained me in transcendental meditation. And and, and since then, I must say, just mindful practices transform my life. And the way that I explain it is that mindfulness, which usually includes uh, practices like meditation, yoga, um, it's really a a type of practice that's done regularly that's been shown to help people be in the present, help their mind focus on, on being in the moment. And studies have shown many, many health benefits, including stress reduction, reduction in pain, um, relieving anxiety, and many other aspects, which certainly have transformed my life and have has done the same for many of my patients as well. Excellent. Well, and uh, mindfulness is something you said it yourself. It's if, if it's done in daily practice. And uh, as a doctor, I'm sure you've dealt with medications and people who've had to take, say, for, uh, uh, for example, depression, they'd have to take antidepressants. Uh, would you feel like uh, if, you, you know, that the benefits of antidepressants typically come if you take it routinely every single day and then you uh, over time can feel the overall benefits of it. Would you feel, do you say that uh, if somebody practices mindfulness with the same frequency and routine that people would take the medication that they would have similar results? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, and notice that it's called mindful practice, right? Even, even what I do in medicine, like uh, it's, a, it's a medical practice. Lawyers have a law practice. Uh, the, the implication there being that it's something that's done chronically, long term. Um, and, and, and yeah, the, in fact, studies show that people who uh, are involved in regular mindful practice, such as daily meditation, regular yoga, uh, uh, um, expressive prayer, gratitude journals, things like that, regular practice, people who participate in regular mindful practice um, exhibit benefits within as early as three weeks. Uh, So I've had many patients who've come back to me and say, um, you know, you're absolutely right, Dr. Roy. I I actually, I don't get as angry as often. I don't get as as stressed out as often. I'm I'm a little bit better. That doesn't mean to say that, you know, everything is perfect. Um, You know, we we just, we're humans. We're flawed. we We have complex emotions. But regular practice most certainly um, can produce benefits within uh, three to four weeks. That, that that's amazing. I I do want to point out the fact that um, where there's someone like you uh, who's on this episode right now with a bunch of degrees. I have no degrees. I am a college dropout because I failed calculus. Um, so there's that. Um, so I uh, feel you tried calculus. Yeah, I tried calculus, and that just that was such an epic failure. I was killing it with algebra and geometry in school in in high school. 
you should have just, you know, said, okay, I'm cool right there, and then take something like statistics, and that would have made up for all of it. I avoided that stuff like the plague. I, I chose being a college dropout. I just felt that that was a lot better option for me, and now and now I sling dick jokes on stage. So that that's my life right there. <laughs> hey, I applaud you for even trying, Mona. Calculus is one of the hardest subtopics within mathematics, so good for you. It's uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I would look at kids in my, in my school, like, who were – who were just doing so well and I was like, Yeah, I'm not I'm not designed for this. I'm I'm designed for more for getting myself berated on stage. Let me let me just do that. So <laughs> no, but this uh no, I, I'm I am actually am a big huge fan. I've actually over the period of years have become a huge fan of meditation. I'm a huge fan of gratitude journals. I, you know, do like a five minute of gratitude every single day. I, t- I talk to a lot of like comedian friends who suffer from anxiety and depression just the way I do. And, uh, you know, that's like one of the things I always tell them. It's like get a gratitude journal or, you know, do five minutes of yeah. gratitude every single day. Or, you know, what are you happy about? What are you grateful about? Or just take five minutes or 10 minutes to meditate. I have this uh, amazing app called Calm. I don't know if you guys have used it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just love that app. It's it's great. I just I just feel less chaotic on the inside when I do it, you know? That's great. And I have that one also, and it's right next to my Kegel app. Oh, wow. You do yeah. Kegels? Yeah, of course. I'm doing them right now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, That's something, you know, and I never have to worry about prostate cancer, so that always helps, too. Yeah. No, it's good to keep things strong. <laughs> <laughs> um, now we were t- we were talking about how a lot of mindful practice uh, connects with sex, and a lot of how sex really what dictates a lot of our sexual behaviors and attitudes are based in anxiety. And uh, mindful practice, tell us ways that uh, it can help address anxiety, especially for people who may be having issues such as uh, uh, erectile dysfunction or some other sexual dysfunction. So I mean. The way that I explain it to uh, the public and when I give talks and as well as to my patients is that mindfulness in general improves overall well-being. Um, it, also, it improves physical health. It improves mental health. Uh, you were talking about things such as, you know, like sexual activity, you know, which can be very complex emotionally and it can it result in lots of just complex emotions as well as physical aspects, obviously, since it's a physical act. Um, but if people have uh, emotions such as anxiety or, or depression or, or, or stress surrounded, uh, surrounding sex, then again, mindful practice can really make all of that better. It'll help us be calm. It'll help us be in the moment. It'll really just reduce the amount of stress that we have either preceding sex or during or after. As I tell people, it really, mindful practice improves every aspect uh, of our lives. Um, you know, Sam, I want to go back to something else that you said. You, you mentioned uh, dep- uh, antidepressants. Um, I, I always do tell people, however, that if, if medications are clinically indicated, then by all means, a person should be on medications. So, you know, while, med- while mindful practice can reduce one's blood pressure to the point where they no longer need, say, blood pressure medications, 
but if they do, they should be on it. You know what I'm saying? So I don't want mindful practice to necessarily uh, replace medications that a person needs. That said, it's quite possible that over time, after regular mindful practice, they may no longer need certain medications. So I just want to make sure that that's my little medical caveat there, uh, disclaimer. We're getting into that. I, you know, I I can also speak from my personal experience. I think I've shared quite a bit about my past with you and uh, just the kind of trauma and yeah. stuff that I've grown up with. And, you know, uh, when I was married, I was married for about nine and a half years to this man who was, uh, you know, less than stellar in his relationship with me. He was pretty verbally and emotionally abusive. And um, I actually went through an addiction phase. You know, I went through like a porn addiction phase because we had no physical relations. We had, we were married, but we were like roommates. And, you know, my form of like not cheating on him or feeling guilty about it later. So I ended up becoming addicted to porn for like two, three years. I mean, it was just a horrible horrible existence and I never want to go back to that but you know now looking back on it and being more quote unquote but more mindful of it or having this level of self-awareness you know and that was such a you know shameful thing for me too right because like this cultural thing of like oh my god uh, you're a dirty person who watches dirty things you know to get off you're horrible and it, you know and the truth is that you were all just human and we're flawed and we're just trying to survive and trying to meet these needs and you know and sometimes there are negative horrible things that we use to heal ourselves and you know i you know i'm not going to i'm not going to say i'm not a fan of porn i am uh but i don't nearly have the level of addiction that i did when i was married to this person yeah you know so. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, everything you're saying is is so actually an an an, an expected response. It's um, you know I often think uh, the way that trauma is is defined is that trauma is a normal human response to abnormal events, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, physical intimacy, particularly in a relationship or a marriage, that's expected, right? right. Um, intimacy between a mother and a child is expected. Um, so when we don't have these expected uh, moments uh, uh, and, uh, of intimacy, closeness, uh, warmth, love, respect in relationships, things falter, right? Yes. Our, our, our brain responds in a way uh, to really... to, to for for self preservation really and um and to, it to, it'll our it'll tell our body to do things to protect ourselves and um and again each person's different right the way you respond to something might be different from the way Sam or me or my patients respond mm-hmm. uh and that's all defined by our upbringing our genetics our culture you know i know this is uh, so South Asian themes and ethnicity and uh, upbringing is, plays a huge role in terms of how we define ourselves and how you know we conduct ourselves and that can be both good and bad in terms of what's quote socially uh, and culturally acceptable so so yeah exactly it's all about self-preservation and doing what we need to do but we only do what we do based on what we know and what we think is normal and expected. Now, we were just talking about porn addiction, and uh, I like to refer to it as climbing Mount Porn. 
as uh, as you you know you start off when you first watch it, just usual vanilla basic stuff is going to be enough to get you off. But the next time you watch it, you're going to need something that escalates it a little bit more, and you continually climb Mount Porn until you see something that actually distresses you, and that's when you have to take a, a moment to reevaluate everything. Yeah, I uh, mean, my porn at this point is uh, just a guy's uh, good good credit score. You know, that's. <laughs> That's a great form of pornography for me. I mean, instead of sending me a dick pic, oh, 100%. Send me a picture of your portfolio. Let's see how diversified it is. That's my point now. Uh, and if they have a 401k, oh, that's the forget it then, right? Oh, we're getting married. Now, <laughs> now we're talking about por- uh, porn addiction. And, uh, you know, the word addiction gets thrown around a lot. But there's, you know, with sex addiction, for example, there's no actual diagnosis for it. Uh, do you feel like this is something that there should be a diagnosis for it? Or does it just fall under impulse control? Yeah, so, you know, it, you, you know you're absolutely right, uh, Sam, in the, in the fact that we as a society do ter- use the term addiction very uh, colloquially. We kind of do throw that around. Even I've been accused of sometimes saying that I have a, a chocolate addiction. Like, I, I'm, I love my sweets, you know, and uh, my desserts. But it, it, the truth be told, the actual technical definition is that addiction is any type of behavior uh, that adversely affects your day-to-day living. So if I was, say, as an example, consuming chocolate to the point where I could no longer pay my bills, I wasn't going to work, it was disrupting my relationships, you know what I'm saying? Like it was adversely affecting my day-to-day life, um, then that's addiction. Um, There's, there's, and and Mona mentioned alcohol earlier, so there's there's levels of drinking that are considered, you know, low levels, but also what's considered at-risk drinking, um, and then, of course, it can lead to alcohol use disorder alcoholism. Uh, yeah, with, you know, you mentioned uh, with sex addiction, uh, look, we, you can develop an addiction to anything, right. frankly, um, it, as long as it meets the certain criteria. And, I, and I was mentioning like, porn, addiction. P- porn addiction. Porn addiction. Say again? I was mentioning porn addiction. What's that, Mona? Porn, porn addiction. Yeah. No, yeah. That, 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 that. Pornography is a known uh, uh, addictive behavior, you know. So, but yeah, it's any type of behavior that ultimately leads to adversely affecting your uh, one's day-to-day uh, living. It could be a, a shopping addiction, gambling, right? These are all behaviors that can lead to uh, addiction. Right. Absolutely. Now, I, I mean, so do you come across, I mean, I, I don't know, like what your patient list kind of looks like. And of course, you don't have to reveal their identities. But do you come across like South Asian or Middle Eastern patients who, uh, you know, do you see a difference in them and the, the kind of problems or the challenges they face versus your non-South Asian, your non-Middle Eastern, uh, you know, as far as, uh, you know, culture playing a role, uh, you know, in their in their illness or, you know, how maybe religion plays a role? Like, is that some, is that a difference that you notice? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've had the opportunity and, and the privilege, frankly, of taking care of people from all walks of life, uh, ages, races, cultures, religious backgrounds, professions, you name it. And yeah, there's, 
My goodness, there's tremendous um, guilt and shame that an individual feels based on based on their uh, their religious backgrounds, uh, based on uh, you know what they their parents are going to say, their right. community, you know, and that could range from you know Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, uh, Orthodox, Jewish, Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic. You know, mm. my my philosophy is I I, I don't. I don't judge people from for w- w- what their background is. You know, yeah. my sole agenda as a as a healthcare professional as a doctor is is to is is the person's uh, health and well being and their safety. You know, so uh, and there's a very common motto in the harm reduction community that's called "Meet people where they're at." So, as an example, if say somebody uh, from uh, an Orthodox Jewish community, uh, a patient comes and says, "Oh, Dr. Roy, I can't. I'm not allowed to consume that particular medication." I'm like, "Okay." Um, I, I ask, "Can you tell me a little bit more about that? You know, what the, your views are, what your concerns are, and you know, if they don't want a particular medication, we'll find other ways to treat whatever their symptoms are." Okay. Um, somebody from the South Asian community, say, who happens to be uh, the, the, the fundamental Hinduism, uh, and they don't believe in um, certain behaviors. You know, I, I just I meet people where they're at. Mm-hmm. I give them an opportunity, a safe space where they can really explain to me what their what their um, issues are, what their concerns are, and um, and often I use that as an opportunity to clarify um, and explain what what my goal is and what our therapeutic uh, goal is. So that's kind of where I start, having a conversation where people can explain uh, and share their concerns. I mean, where do, you, where do you think a lot of this resistance comes from? Do you think it comes from ignorance? Do you think it comes from a lack of knowledge? Like, I'm the first person ever in my family to go to therapy, and my family was shocked when they heard that I went to therapy. It was, like, yeah. such a big deal, right? Because in the South Asian culture, and even the Middle Eastern culture, there's only two kinds of people, crazy and normal. There's nothing in the middle, right? There's no gray yeah. area. Life is like this black and white, and you and I know damn well that life is not black and white. Life is anything but black and white. It's, it's so many shades of gray. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, I just kind of often wonder, like, you know, I brought up therapy for my mom. My mom has lived a very traumatic life. And I was like, mom, you should consider going to therapy. And, you know, to her, she had this immediate kind of this aversion. You know, do you know what she said to me? She was like, oh, I have a friend in the mosque and I'm going to talk to her. And she's a therapist. I'm like, all right, cool. Awesome. You go talk to her. A few days later, I'm like, mom, did you yeah. talk to your therapist friend? She was like, yes, she told me I am perfect. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was yeah. like, she said what now? No, she I said, I am perfect. And I was like, oi. <laughs> First of all, you have the accent down, Mona. Um, <laughs> and uh, but more more importantly, yeah, what you raised is is the is the key point, which is stigma, right? Yes. And so, what is stigma? Stigma is anything that's socially discrediting, right? It's any type of behavior conditioning that's socially discrediting, and it leads to guilt and shame. And and most importantly, it leads to a lack of access to treatment and care that can be life-saving. And, um, you know, I just wrote an article about um, in Forbes about mental illness and and brain diseases in general, particularly uh, mental illness and addiction. And because there was a, a, a forum, a panel that I was covering uh, at the annual Forbes Healthcare Summit. And, uh, 
Yeah, I, I, and, and in that article, I talk about how, according to the World Health Organization, the most stigmatized uh, social problem in the world is drug addiction, and mental illness is like, I think, number three. Mm. And if you think about the fact that brain disorders, including mental illness, addiction, as well as neurologic disorders, include, I think, 10% of the global disease burden. And in the United States alone, 23 million Americans have some type of substance use disorder. Mm. And in the world, only 10% access treatment. And a major barrier is stigma. So many people still think of mental illness um, uh, and and drug addiction as being a moral failure. You know, how many times have you guys heard people say, oh, he he just needs to get over it. She just needs to buck up. That's right. She just needs to get her life in order. That's right. You know, I mean, but would we ever say that about somebody with colon cancer? Exactly. Or leukemia? Exactly. Or or kidney failure? Exactly. Or or, or even now today with HIV AIDS, we have very good medications to help people live very long and productive lives, like antiretroviral medications. So, you know, uh, the mental health and addiction community, they need to be where they are today here, uh, what what, um, uh, HIV AIDS was, say, in in the 80s and 90s, right? So Mm. we have a long way to go. And um, education, to answer your question, Mona, it it really starts with um, science, and storytelling. Right. So sharing the data, sharing data like that, the fact that therapy and medications really make a difference, yeah. and and stories. So like, say, you know, you can talk about Mona, or I can talk about my my auntie, who's now she went to see a therapist mm-hmm. and and uh, or a doctor, and she's now on medication, and she's feeling a lot better. She's doing a lot better. You know, I I think sharing stories and 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 the science behind it really destigmatizes stigmatizes and frankly normalizes these, um, these health conditions. Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you that one of the things that I have observed and kind of grown up with and even see among, you know, younger like Muslims here, like Middle Eastern or South Asian, it doesn't matter. Uh, one of the things that the yeah. parents or the grandparents would tell the kids or the grandkids is that, oh, you're going through that because you don't have God in your life. So you need to, you need to pray yeah. more. You need to like, and it's just like, well, you know, that's nice, but if you're if you're a bipolar schizophrenic, you know, you need medication, you need therapy, like you need some low level of like, you know, scientific medical healing. Like that's, you know, God is God gave you a brain and people used it and came up with medication to help and heal people. And I feel like that is also so much of like this kind of this kind of ignorance, this kind of dismissal of like somebody who's sick to be like, oh, you know, just like you said, oh, you know, buck up or figure it out or get over it. And it's just like, well, if you are, you know, if you have, you know, severe like, you know, chemical imbalance or you have, you know, personality disorders that you grew up with so much trauma and abuse and you know you're trying to overcome it like you know I feel like the shame just makes you retrieve back you know you're just like you know I'm just a broken fucked up person and I can't be healed and I can't be fixed and I bring shame to my family so I'm just gonna be quiet and just you know just not 
fix myself. You said the key word with a lot no, of the it, issue with the uh, yeah. Middle Eastern culture, and that is the shame. And that's why there's so much stigma around mental health and sexuality. Yep. It's, uh, a lot of what we're trying to do with the show Forbidden Talk is destigmatize a lot of the things that within the culture, people have become so regressive in their ability to communicate about it that's become toxic. That's right. So uh, really, uh, what are some ways, Dr. Roy, that we can, uh, what steps can we take to help open it up for the next generation so that at least, you know, a lot of the patterns that got passed down to us communication wise, we can recognize the negative aspects of it and try to break them and start new ones that actually are more adaptive and more productive for the next generation? Yeah, I, that's a great question. And I, I you know, I, I, as I said before, you know, just talking about it really makes a difference. And, and, and kind of meeting people where they're at as well. So Mona used the example of, of, of these community members um, in the South Asian, say Muslim communities, Indian communities, whatever, who talk about God, and they say, well, you don't have God in your life. Mm-hmm. Well, so then that tells me that God is important to them, right? So, and, and it could be important to the person who's experiencing these complex issues and health issues. So if that's the case, then you can start there, engage in, in spirituality. Um, there's really something, a lot, a lot to be said about that, spirituality and, and, and God. And um, there's a common saying in addiction, which is the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. Mm. So a lot of people, um, you know, when they are told that you're bad, you're, you're doing things that are wrong and dirty and you should be ashamed of yourself, they retreat and they regret and they feel isolated. So, um, and that's absolutely not what we want. And instead, what happens, we end up having a society with all these lonely, isolated people in these silos who then self-medicate. So I think with these communities, ethnic communities, I, I, I think part of it is really we have to keep telling these stories. We have to identify people that are in the communities who feel comfortable sharing their stories, but protect them. Um, you know, partner them with people who are, say, healthcare professionals, like, say, like me, um, and, and maybe have people that kind of look like them. Um, another right. fellow South Asian, uh, you know, who maybe has some qualifications that'll maybe add some credibility to these communities and, and, and talk about it. Uh, you know, I, and I also really believe in collaborating and working in other um, uh, sectors. This is why I, I think me working with Mona was a really good collaboration because I, she has a skill set in terms of making people laugh that I, I don't have. And similarly, I have a skill set that she doesn't have. But when you, exactly. there's something beautiful about comedy and laughter that just disarms people. It just, it just naturally makes people feel relaxed. Yes. So if we can help people laugh, because I do believe that laughter is one of the best medicines. If we can do things like that, where we bring together members of, like, see the comedy community, medical community, legal community, you name it. Um, if we can all like work together, because all these communities have, they have legal issues as well, right? They have health issues, legal. So you know what I'm saying? If we can address people's concerns in a way that makes sense to them, without making them feel 
bad, um, I think that's kind of where to, where to start. And starting small, you know, starting like little by little. Mm-hmm. And then when people see the, the results over time, they'll think, huh, that Mona person, that Lippy person, yeah, I think they, they might be onto something, right. you know. But they are coming to that realization. You know, We're just kind of guiding them. Does that make sense? Yep. You know? Yeah, and Dr. Lippy Roy, I want to thank you personally for joining us and contributing to the conversation, because this is something that really within this specific culture, and we're talking about uh, comfortable and uh, how people tend to get really comfortable. A way that I describe depression to a lot of people is comfortable destructiveness. It's a slow erosion of who we are under the guise of being comfortable. It's the feeling that makes us not want to get out of bed or leave the couch. But if there's a certain aspect of our culture that have become comfortably destructive because we have not been able to talk about it openly and it's just withering away and it's eroding and we got to do stuff to open up that conversation. So thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Seriously, this was awesome. Thank you, Dr. Lippy Roy. We really appreciate it. it. Thank you. Sam, how amazing was that interview? That was great. I, I mean, I love it when we get experts on here who help really... They've got uh, not just credibility. They've she's got so much experience with this stuff, yep. and she practiced a lot of this mindful stuff with people who were some of the originators of the modern art of uh, mindful practice. Yes. So it was really good that she brought that up and how it relates to anxiety management and also how it relates to sex because yes. a lot of times people have you know our daily lives, our stress, you know, our it adds up and it actually has that. Uh, the side effect of having sexual dysfunction uh, attached to it. So if you're stressed out, if you're a guy, then chances are you're going to be less likely to be able to get aroused in the moment that you want to be able to get aroused. Right. So these are things that mindful practice, uh, deep breathing exercises, meditation, yoga, all of the things that we do to help us disconnect from the external world and reconnect with our own processes that's the whole purpose of mindfulness. And it, I'm glad we had her on here to help us go through all of that. I've become just such a huge fan of hers. The moment we talked, we just I just instantly felt a connection with her. We are actually working on a really cool project that's coming up in 2020, but I'm going to reveal that in due time. Yeah. We're, See, doing, a, we're doing a collaboration. I'm super excellent. excited about that. Man. Excellent. So, yeah, uh, definitely uh, anybody out there who really wants to know what's going on and see how this project that uh, Mona and Dr. Lippy Roy are working on, keep it here. We're going to update you all throughout uh, the whole process as it goes. Uh, would keep make sure you will keep you updated and we'll post stuff on Facebook, on Twitter, Instagram. Pay attention to all of our social medias because you want to be attuned to all of the stuff that we're going to be doing. Yep, and you can uh, find all our social media and everything on ForbiddenTalkShow.com. ForbiddenTalkShow.com. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Until next time, I'm Sam. That's Mona. This is Forbidden Talk.